Okay, so last week we talked about the parable of the sower. And uh, this is Jesus introducing parables for the first time. And what was the reason I concluded that Jesus began to speak in parables to people? Hey, brother John. Uh, that the because uh, Israel, the leaders of Israel, the religious leaders rejected Jesus and his supernatural miracles. And what ex- what exactly were they doing? They were call- oh yeah, I'm sorry. They were calling him of the devil. Yeah. And that he uh, his that things that he was doing was from the above and right. Yeah. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit two times, and uh, it was time to speak in parables. Now, what's the three purposes of parables? Three purposes. Three reasons Jesus spoke in parables. Can I? First one is to reveal truth to those who really want it. And how do we know they really wanted it in this instance right here? What do they do? Can I? Came back and asked them for more information. They really wanted the truth. They sought after it. What's the second purpose? Again, Daniel, Daniel? Conceal the truth from the hard hearts. That's right. And not only conceal, but confuse the truth they already had. And whose fault was it that those people's hearts were uh, growing dull, that their ears uh, were closed, and their eyes they could not see? Whose fault was it? Theirs or God's? Yeah. So God didn't choose eternity past. Your ears are going to be closed, your eyes are going to, your, your eyes are going to be closed, your hearts are going to be dull. Uh, it says, even says right there, it says, their eyes, they have closed. Uh, their hearts have grown dull, or calloused, or hard. Um, and so, this was an act of judgment from God upon these people who have done these things to themselves, who have already heard clear teachings from Jesus. You can't get any clearer than Matthew 5-7, through Sermon on the Mount. Clear as a bell. And they all heard it. And uh, now he's not giving them that anymore. He's speaking to them in parables. It's a judgment to them. Take away the knowledge they already had. Confuse the knowledge they, they already had. And what was the third purpose? Daniel? Fulfill prophecy. That's right. Isaiah 6, 9-10, which is quoted there in verses 14 and 15. And then the, the parable of the sower was explained by Jesus. And there's four different soils or four different grounds, and how many of those four had actual true belief? Yeah? yeah. No? Nope. That's one that persevered to the end. Daniel? Yes, it was three. That's right. The first one didn't have any belief. Hard, hard ground, the, the sea could not go into the soil. Could not, there was no soil there. It was a hard cement. Couldn't get in there. But the other three, the seed was initially received into the ground. Now, what was this? What was one element, even in the one ground, didn't believe that was the same in all four instances? What's this, John? The seed's the same. That's the word of God. There is no false message being preached here, as some people would interpret this passage. That the reason why the second and third soil did what they did because they heard a false message, an easy believism message. And that's why they fell away. They really have it in the first place. 
And the one element that's true of the last three that did believe is they all received it. Same word used there. And people will say, well, this, the second and third soul didn't really receive it. Well, if they didn't really receive it, then either the fourth one. It's the same word being used there. So they all, all three of those received it. And two of them fell away after a period of time. Yeah, they'll use the second and third soil. Ray Comfort talks about this. I mean, you probably haven't listened to that in a while, but you can go back and listen to it, and he'll say that, that uh, you know, they were never saved, genuinely. Which, you can't get that from the passage. You have to come to the passage with that in your hand and interpret it that way. So, um, that's what we see here. We even see in verse 21 that he stumbles, this is scandalizomai, which is where we get our English word scandalized, which means to cease believing, fall into sin, cause of ruin that's what it means there um, ok so let's get into this week we're going to start in verse 24 and go through verse 43 another parable Jesus put forth to them saying the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field but while men slept his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way but when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, do you not sow, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow until the harvest, at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Another parable he, he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took sowed into his, and, and sowed in his field, which is the least of all the seeds. When it is grown, it is greater than the herbs, and becomes a tree, for the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Another parable he spoke to them, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, the woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leavened. All these things spoke to the multitudes. Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables. And without a parable, he did not speak to them. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Then Jesus sent the multitudes away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the son of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them to the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Another uh, misunderstood parable, the parable of the wheat and tares. And um, we hear Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven. I want to get a little refresher here for you. What's the four parts to every kingdom? John. The king or ruling body. Okay, that's the first part other parts to every kingdom. Daniel? Dominion. The area in which that king or ruling body rules. Three? 
subjects. Now, these are those who are obeying the king inside of his dominion, his sphere of rule. And what's the fourth part? Laws. Laws, that's right. By which the subjects obey. Okay? And so, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven here. And the kingdom of heaven, where, what what it encompasses, what dominion encompasses God and Jesus' rule? The whole universe. The whole universe. Who are his who are his subjects? Born again Christians. Yes. But within his sphere of rule, there are going to be people who aren't his subjects, but are within his sphere of rule. This is not obeying his laws, there's consequences for not obeying his laws. Okay? And we see we see some of these principles in practice right here. Now I want to read this like Calvinist just for a second here, so just bear with me. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. While men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. When the grain has sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and so the Calvinist of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He, and God said to them, Silly Calvinist, I'm not a Calvinist God. An enemy has done this, not me. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and, and gather them up? So if Calvinism is true, it couldn't have been an enemy sowing these tares. It had to have been God sowing these tares as the ultimate reason why these tares are there in the first place. Because he decrees, ordains all things whatsoever come to pass. And Calvin himself will say that the devil and all the train of the ungodly, everything they do is God doing it through them. He doesn't even allow them to do things. He is causing them to do these things. Okay, But we see here that God's saying, it wasn't me who did this. It was an enemy who did this. An enemy did this. It wasn't me. So we have God saying, I'm, I'm not responsible for this. I had no part in this. I sowed the good seed, which brought forth wheat. The enemy sowed the bad seed, which brought forth tares. And the question becomes then, you know, for us who are his servants, and we see these tares, what should we do with them? Well, should we pluck them out now and kill them and get rid of them? No, we shouldn't. We shouldn't kill heretics. We sh we shouldn't kill unbelievers. We should have them put to death. Well, yeah. Well, that's that's a problem. Some people are going to have because some people would think it's okay to do that. But Jesus says, you know, uh, don't worry about that. It's not your job to think about that. At the end of the age, I will take care of this, not you. It's not your job to kill people. Not your job to job to remove them from the earth. It's my job to bring them to judgment. Into judgment. Now, there's been some confusing here about why he said, uh, no, lest while you gather the tares, you also uproot wheat with them. And if people who believe in one save, always saved, and people who are antinomians, like Charles Stanley, uh, people who are Calvinists would say, well, look, see, the reason why he didn't want to remove them is because they look just alike. You can't tell the difference between the two. You know, and, and you know, Christians can be ungodly, and that's why you... you if you, you might uproot an ungodly, a Christian who's ungodly and you'll uproot the wrong thing. But that's not what it's saying here. It's simply saying here, I mean, when you, you know, you're planting a garden, you want to take care of the weeds ahead of time. You want to prepare ahead of time to make sure the weeds don't grow in there. 
but if they're, ga they're taking up the same soil as your plants and they're growing deep into that soil, you rip them up, you can rip up some of that plant with it. And you're going to damage that plant in the process. That's all it's saying here in the natural sense. He's talking to people who know about farming and what happens there. And in, and in saying that, he's not saying they look alike. If that were true, then how could this servant say, why are there tares here? How would they know there's tares there in the first place? They all looked alike. See, even the servants could tell the difference between the wheat and the tares. So the reason that he said don't rip them up had nothing to do with them looking alike. The servants could tell the difference before the angels come, before Christ comes back and gathers in the harvest. They could tell, just like we now, can tell the difference between a wheat and a tear. Because you should know them by their fruits. Why would God say that if we couldn't tell the difference? But people will take this past and say, look, you, you, we can be just like the unbelievers. Well, what does the Bible say if you're like the world? You're an enemy of God. So how can you come to that interpretation of this passage when it contradicts the whole of Scripture? But that's what people will do when they come to the Scripture of the doctrine in hand. Instead of seeing what the Scripture says. So they're just in the same soil, is all he's saying, and it's not your job to do that. I've already set forth the people who are going to do it at the end of the age. Not now. And let's face it, the parables can only go so far because, guess what? Tares can what? Become wheat. Can tares in a natural sense become wheat? Doesn't happen. I mean, God in miraculous power could do it if he wanted to, but it doesn't happen. But in, in the spiritual sense, tares, I used to be a tear. I always used to be tares. Some of us still are tares. But you can be, tear can become a wheat. Right. That's one of the reasons why I wouldn't reap them out. But when he says that, he's just talking about a natural and he's basically saying it's none of your business to do that. It's not your job to do that. I've already set forth people who have that job. And they will take care of that at the time of the harvest. Now in verse 30 it says, uh, gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. Now this is one thing that they would really understand because they didn't have a good natural source of fuel back in those days. Uh, you know, you weren't really using oil yet. Um, you know, so there wasn't a big oil rush in the Middle East where there's lots of, you know, they're selling their stuff to other countries and charging lots of money for it. Uh, they used tares for fuel. They burned them. Uh, but they would gather them in bundles. Just kind of like you see when you're driving up to Walmart, you see all the hay. They're gathering it up in the bundles, not to burn them, but for animals to eat. They would do the same thing. This doesn't necessarily mean that when Christ returns, that that is when people are thrown into hell. Okay, that's going to happen at a later time, and I'll get to that here in a second as to some other scriptures that, that talk about that, but he's gathering together, and there's a time of harvest. And let's, let's go down to verse 36 through verse 43 to finish up the parable of tares, and then we'll go back to the mustard seed in 11. Um, so Jesus sent the multitudes away, and he explained the parables to those who were seeking after the disciples, and uh, sowing the good seed is the son of man. Now, it's not just the Son of Man. Obviously, we are sowing the seed as well, but we're doing it on behalf of the Son of Man. So he's actually sowing the seed through us. He's taking responsibility for that. And the field, see, here's another problem people have with the parable of tares. They think it's just talking about the church here. If the field is a church, and they'll say all the tares are the false converts, 
and the the wheat or the true converts and they're all together and you don't want to take out the tares and tell them to get out of the church because then you might send them away and they're really weak and you can't tell the difference. But this is what is the field here? The field is the the world. The field isn't the church. The field is the world. The wheat who are the sons of the kingdom, according to verse 38, they are the church, not the world. In the world, you're going to have tares, and you're going to have wheat. And so the, the people who misinterpret this, this parable, they're coming up with all kinds of things that are just not found in the parable itself to come away with their interpretation of the parable. And we see that the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels or the messengers. And we'll look at some passages that, that talk about that in Revelation here in a minute. The Son of Man will send out his angels and will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. So the people who are gathered are those who are, practicing, who are not obeying, not submitting to the laws of the king, but they're in the dominion of the king and their, their final destination will be the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the righteous will shine forth the Son in the kingdom of their father he has ears to hear, let him hear. And notice here that when he's talking to his disciples, who's included in this disciples he's talking to? How many disciples are there? Twelve. And so who's included in that twelve who? Judas. Jesus says, he has ears to hear, let him hear. So even amongst his disciples, those who are coming to him and hearing the explanation, there's one who does not have ears to hear does not have ears to hear. And let's, let's go to Revelation 14. And uh, because some people would say that from this, from this parable, uh, not interpreting scripture with scripture, that, that people go to hell when Christ comes back the first time. I don't think that's true. I think Revelation explains the uh, sequence of events of how it happens. So we'll look at Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having an, on his head a golden crown, and his hand a sharp sickle. Who's, this, who's that right there? That's Jesus. That's right. <coughs> Another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for time has come for you to reap the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. So the earth which is the field in the parable of the wheat and tares, is reaped, and what is taken up? The wheat. The wheat is taken up. And interestingly, interestingly enough, when, um, when someone harvests wheat, the wheat heads stand above the tares. So they don't dig into the ground and pull everything up. They're cutting the heads of the wheat off like this, and then they get the wheat, and then they can just get rid of everything else. Yeah. Is, but um, what I'm saying is they don't they don't cut down below, they cut up above. So he he's he's reaping his sickle across the top and gathering the wheat, okay, and then the rest can be burned. Eventually, and uh, you know it says right here. This is just a little side note here in verse 15. For the earth is ripe. Uh, the word there for ripe literally means drying up. So it's basically like if you don't if you don't reap it right now, it's all wheat's gonna go to waste. And it's, it's like what Christ said, I think, in Matthew 24, that uh, for the sake of the elect, he came. You know, because if it wasn't for him coming, they might even perish. 
So he, he comes back at just the right time when there's the, the wheat's about to dry up. They can't last any longer. And so he comes and harvests uh, the, the wheat from the earth. And then we have the, in verse 17, the grapes of wrath. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. Another angel came out from the, from the altar, who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for our grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs, or 180 miles. Okay, uh, So we have this the Battle of Armageddon happen. These, 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 these armies are surrounding Jerusalem, and Christ has taken his wheat, he's harvested them, and now it's time to destroy his enemies that are coming against him around Jerusalem. Okay, Let's go to... Uh, Revelation 19, I believe. And this will give us more details. And they're also going to go to Joel and we're going to go to Isaiah to get some more details about the, what's happening here when Christ returns. And you'll see more here about, the, uh, about who he's going to fight against when he comes back. Starting in verse 11 of Revelation 19. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Who's that? That's Jesus. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now we'll see whose blood that is here in a minute. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen. And let's stop right there. What, what, is the, what it consists of this fine linen? Where is this fine linen from? Fine linen. What is, what is it made out of? White robes, but whose uh, whose righteousness is it? Yes, the saints' righteousness. Uh, it's the righteous acts of the saints. And I'm trying to find that scripture passage real quick here. I know I have it here. So, oh, it's right there in Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. So she's doing something to make herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Not the righteous perfection of Jesus Christ, but the righteous acts of the saints. So they're clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horse. You know, they've already been reaped to the sky. They met him in the sky, now they're coming back with him. And out of his mouth go this sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fiercest and wrath of Almighty God. He has on his robe... And on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of the heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. When the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive in the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with a sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So the armies 
of the world are gathered in Jerusalem to fight against the Jews and against Jesus Christ, obviously. And he destroys them. And he tells the birds of the air, come fill up on their flesh. And this is what it's referring to back in Revelation 14, where the, the blood flows for 180 miles. That's a large battlefield. 180 miles. The whole valley of the ghetto is really huge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and in Revelation fourteen twenty, it says that the blood reached up to the the, uh, the horses' bridles. Now, I don't think that there's actually like a lake of blood that's going up to the bridle. I think it's talking about you know if you if you ever watched war films that there's when there's a big battlefield of of dead people and the horses are trampling through it, it gets all over them. It gets all over them up to their bridles. So there's a, but there's a lot of blood, a lot of damage, a lot of carnality. And unfortunately, a lot of people's view of Jesus doesn't encompass this kind of stuff. This is what Jesus is going to do to his enemies. He's not some baby in a manger anymore. That you have up on your, on, you know, during December 25th, you have up on a little, you know, a little figurine piece thing that you're seeing him in a manger. He's not on the cross anymore. You know, he's coming back as a lion of Judah. You know, the lamb got devoured already. But a lion is now coming to devour. You, know, you don't see lions lay down like a little house cat and let something kill it. No, they, you ever seen a lion kill something? It devours it. I mean, within a matter of less than an hour, a whole lion pride devours these huge animals that are 2,000 pounds. And that's the lion of Judah is going to come back and destroy his enemies. So what happens when Christ comes back, he's going he's to destroy his enemies physically. But the only people who are cast in the lake of fire, when he, right when he comes back, are the false prophet and the beast. The Antichrist and the false prophet. That's who's cast into hell when he first comes back. Now, these passages have a lot to do with the Old Testament, using the same language. And I just want to go to that real quick. Let's go to... Um, I wanted to go to Joel here. Let's go to Joel. Joel is right after uh, Hosea, which is right after Daniel. In Joel chapter 3, in verse 12. And it says, Let the nations be wakened and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, the valley of Jehoshaphat, as I understand it, is in between um, Mount Zion and Mount Olive, the Mount of Olives. Okay? For there I was the judge of all the surrounding nations, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the wine press is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. The day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark, and the stars will diminish in their brightness. The Lord will also roar from Zion. And utter his voice from Jerusalem, the heavens and earth will shake. The Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Now notice in verse 15, the sun and moon will grow dark. Now when does that happen? the very end, right before he comes back, the cosmic signs of the sixth seal. Those things happen right before he comes back. So, it's talking about Christ's return. And this is him judging uh, the nations. Let's go to Isaiah uh, 63. 
is AS63. Starting in verse 1, this is where you're going to see uh, whose blood Jesus' robe had on it. This will give you some details here. Starting in verse 1 of Isaiah 63. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This one who is glorious in his apparel, tra traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and for the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger, and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. The day of vengeance is, on, is on, in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury has sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. So he's destroying uh, his enemies when he returns. One more passage, Zechariah 14. Zechariah the second to the last book of the Old Testament, before Malachi. And, um, you know, when when the Bible uses this language like he's trotting the wine press, you know, that's real figurative language, okay? Uh, the color of wine is pretty close to the color of blood. Okay? It's just saying he's going to destroy his enemy. Now, if you want to know exactly how it's going to happen, here's some details. Verses 12 and 13 of Zechariah 14. You'll see, uh, this tells you, I think, exactly how it's going to happen. This shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. It's the battle of Armageddon here. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets. And their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. So come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. So they, they're just, they're freaking out because they're dissolving. Their eyes are dissolving, their tongue's dissolving, their body's dissolving. So they're just trying to kill anyone they can see. They're just, they're, they still have their wicked hearts even in the midst of this judgment from God. Trying to find anyone they can to lay hands on and kill. Um, so this is what happens in when Christ returns. Uh, Christ does not throw anyone to hell then. We see in Revelation 20, when Christ casts people into hell, after his thousand-year reign, after the devil goes out to deceive the nations again for a short period of time, after his thousand-year reign, we see in verse 11 of Revelation 20, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was, no, there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, but the things which were written in the books. The sea gave the dead who were in it, and the death and the Hades delivered the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So the final resting place of the wicked, they don't go there, unless you're talking about the Antichrist and the false prophet, they don't go there until after the thousand year reign, after the Satan had deceived the nations for a period of time, and then uh, Christ will have the white throne judgment and judgment day. And everyone who's in Hades then will be judged. Now in Hades, at that point in time, you know, of course we have two compartments in Hades. The upper compartment got emptied when Christ came back. That's 
for all the righteous, for all the, they are at Abraham's bosom. And just, just as a side note, it's called Abraham's bosom because, you know, when, when you're, you're hanging out with someone, you might, you know, kind of lay out a little bit. Abraham's there in paradise. He's there in the upper part of Hades. You're, it's simply saying you're of the faith of Abraham, you're hanging out with Abraham. The upper compartment of Hades already been emptied when Christ returned the first time. But are there people in it now? Has it been filled back up with some people since then? Yeah, during the thousand-year reign, we saw if we went to Zechariah 14 again, during the thousand-year reign, there's people who Christ allows to live. So when Christ returns, he doesn't destroy all uh, non-Christians. He destroys all the non-Christians who come to wage war against him in Jerusalem. And so the upper part, of, upper compartment of Hades does have people in it again at the great white throne judgment, and that's why it says then, if your name is found written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you're not cast in like a fire. Okay, so that's what we see at the right. The great white throne judgment is talking about all the wicked who've died in their sins and those who died during the thousand-year reign who died following Christ and serving him, but they lived normal lives like we're living right now because Christ allowed them to live uh, past his coming. So that's what you see happening at the end. So when we look at Matthew 13... And look at the parable of tares. We have to keep the rest of the scripture in mind. Okay, Christ is not casting people into hell fire, into the lake of fire, when he comes back, unless we're talking about the Antichrist and the false prophet. Okay, um, so that's what we see happening in the parable of tares, and we need to, you know, help other Christians who are deceived about a bad interpretation of the parable of tares, how it really should be interpreted. Uh, parable of sower and parable of tares, man, just a wheat and tares are probably the two most misunderstood parables there are in the Word of God. And it's led to a lot of false doctrines. Okay? Alright, now let's go to the parable of the mustard seed real quick and the parable of leaven. Another parable he would forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. For when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, for the birds of the air come and nest in its branch. Now there's been lots of fuss about this from atheists who try to find contradictions in God's words of it calling it the least of all the seeds well who is he talking to here he's talking to people who are living in Palestine during the first century who didn't live in North America they didn't live in China they lived in Palestine and in Palestine in the first century it was the least the smallest of all the seeds so he's speaking to them in their context. He's not making a scientific declaration of fact of all time. This is the smallest seed in all the world. He's speaking to people according to the knowledge they have. It is the least seed according to them. And um, from what I understand, the mustard seed plant can grow to be about 12 feet tall, which is plenty big for birds to come and nest in. And, and what people do is... They, Parables aren't meant to, because if you go to every single little detail, you're going to come up with a lot of different crazy things, okay? Parables usually have one or two things to say, okay? What Jesus is saying in the parable of the mustard seed is this little seed that I'm planting, this small little church that's going to start with 12 disciples and maybe 100 other people, it's going to grow and expand and expand and expand. And eventually, it'll take over the whole earth. But not until Christ comes back. You know, some people will take this and say, well, I'm an amillennialist, I'm a preterist, we need to take over the earth now, and we need to fill the earth now, and before Christ comes back, and then he'll come back. That's not what Revelation says. 
that'll happen then. Uh, and, and, and we're not giving it to him. He will give it to us. And we will rule and reign with him. We're not ruling and reigning when he comes back and then we give it to him. I mean, if we're ruling and reigning when he comes back, who's he going to destroy? Where are the wicked to destroy? If all the governments and all the countries of the earth are, are, are Christian and obeying the laws of the Old Testament, then who's he going to destroy? What armies are going to fight against him? And so some people take these things too far. So it is the least of all the seeds in that area of the world. And it did grow. They can grow up to about the, the black, uh, it's called the black mustard seed. It can grow to be about 12 feet tall, the tree. Okay? Which is really big for an herb. That's really big for an herb. Okay? That's, not, that's not usually what I think when I think herbs. I think little plants that stand about this high off the ground. You know, not 12 feet tall. You know, two times my size. So, but the, the point is, is he's going to take something small and he's going to make it great. I mean, look where, look where Christianity started. It started in Jerusalem. It's all over the world now almost. The only part of the world that it really is in this part called the 1040 window. We talked about before, a 1040 window from the 10 degree to 40 degree mark. You know, it's, it's come, you know, the Middle East going all the way back to China. We talked about the China the Chinese church going to take it back to Jerusalem, that movement. Uh, so, you know, we're trying to reach those people now. But it's, it's spread all over the world. It has. It's become great. And then it's parable 11, which is basically the same principle being used here. And uh, three measures of, of, of meal until it was all leavened. Okay? Three measures is comparable to two pecks which in the American context would be four gallons. Okay? We're talking about a large amount of flour here that we're leavening. We're not talking about, you know, I'm making a making a pie today or I'm making a pie crust or I'm making, you know, some biscuits for a family. I ate in a family of nine. I'm talking about long time, big groups of people. So, but the point Jesus is making here is that this little bit of leaven will spread throughout this whole big piece of dough like it's supposed to. And the, the followers of Jesus Christ said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Yes. So the true followers of Christ are being fishers of men and therefore they're spreading to their Jerusalem, their Judea, their Samaria until the ends of the earth. That's what the true followers are doing. Because they're following Jesus Christ. And so it's growing. And uh, as Jesus says, even the gates of hell not prevail against his church. They'll continue to grow. They can push us off a stool, they can punch us, they can do whatever they want to do. But it's not going to stop us. They can even kill us if they want to. Then all our children will raise up and do the same thing we did. And they can kill their children. And then they'll have children, they'll raise up and do the same thing they did. Because we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. And just one more thing I'll touch on before I close here is verse 34 and 35, talking about parables again. He says in verse, at the end of, when he's quoting the Old Testament passage, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. There's that secret thing and that mystery thing again. Jesus is speaking the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the mystery that Ephesians 3 talks about, or Paul talks about the mystery revealed to him, the gospel of the kingdom. <clears throat> and um, the interesting thing here, he's saying he's using parables to utter secrets, not keep them secret but to utter secrets. And uh, obviously, the only people who are going to get this secret are those who are listening carefully. It's like if someone's whispering a secret, like they're listening carefully, and they really want to know what's going on here. You know, if you're keeping something secret, the only people who are going to find out, the people you're talking directly to or listening carefully are those who come to you and say, well, what were you guys talking about? You know, that's the people who are going to find out. People who are 
who are, you know, don't really care what you're saying, they're never going to find out the secret. They're never going to find out the mystery. All right. Well, I think that's it for me. All right, questions, objections, things to add. Where is it that uh, in heaven, uh, all of heaven's quiet for half hour, and All heaven is quiet for half an hour. They didn't know who was going to open the scroll. And then the Lamb came and opened the scroll. That's in Revelation. Let's see here. Okay, it's Revelation 5. Excuse me. Uh, maybe that's not the one where they're quiet for half an hour. Let's see here. 5 8. Oh no! I'm, I, I think you misunderstand what I'm saying here. Uh, he is the lamb. He's still the lamb, but it depends on who you're talking about. Who's the who's the lion to? Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, he's a gentle lion to us. You, know, you picture uh, that's one of the thing, good things I think about the, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. It gives that that lion Aslan. I think it really does give you a good picture. Of Jesus is the kind of two sides of Jesus when he's talking about people who are on the side, the little children can pet them and ride on them and you know, that, that kind of gentle side to those who he loves, but but to the wicked, he devours them. Yeah. So we're part of his pride. His life. Right. Yeah, I don't think we're I don't think we're involved in the stomping out. I think we're coming back with him, but we're not involved in the stomping out. Well, you know, I, I, well, I think we're going to see it. Yeah, I definitely think we're going to see it. And I think Isaiah uh, or Zechariah that we went to talked about the uh, what it's going to be like, how they're going to be dissolved. Um, you know, obviously, obviously he saw it vision of it so I, I do think we're going to see it we'll see it before our eyes and um, but we're, we're not going to be you know most times when you have an army it's led by a general or a captain some leader into battle but the general sends out the privates general sends out the privates this in this army the heavenly army the, the general is going to battle well it depends on who you're talking about you're talking about an American army yeah the general is going to sit back and just do nothing with their brass but you know some militaries the actual general goes in the battle and leads them in the battle and is brave with them. Um, but in this case, we're not doing any fighting. I mean, what fighting needs to be done? Does, does he need our help to dissolve their skin, their flesh, dissolve their eyeballs, and dissolve their tongues? Do we even have the ability to, to make that happen? I mean, we don't. I've heard some people, uh, some teachers, Christian teachers, that will... Promoting patriotism and stuff. So, look, this nuclear warfare is how God's going to uh, resolve his enemies in Jerusalem. And this is that's the way out, man. 
it's like, okay, so God doesn't have power, more power than a nuclear bomb. Which that is a, that, you know, when a nuclear explosion goes off, that happens. Yeah, but who created the atoms, though? But God created the atoms. God just makes a couple of atoms explode right there in the, 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 uh, in the valley there, and they're done. Yeah, that's all it takes. It's just they're a, done. Just a few atoms. He doesn't need a warhead. He doesn't need a, warhead he doesn't need a person to put it together. It's not as if God was surprised when man started making atom bombs and saying, oh, I didn't know atoms could do that. <laughs> you know? Right. He knew it could happen all along. Right. And, and the Bible talks about Jesus holding, holding them together, holding the atom molecules together. So maybe he decided not to hold two together right there. Yes. I mean, that's what it is. Okay. Uh, but I, I, don't, I don't think you can... I mean, obviously it's saying the Lord is doing this here. Um, it's, not, it's not us doing this. It's not some crusade we're going on. No. No, we don't have to go on a crusade. Uh, and all throughout the Revelation, all throughout the end time teachings, the saints are given are are given into the hands of the enemy for the time. You know, we're not fighting back. You find that nowhere in the scriptures. So we're always non-resistant. You know, a physical sense anyway. Spiritual sense, we're always resistant. Resisting the devil, resisting the world, resisting the flesh, having our sword of the spirit. Shield of the faith. Yes. Right. Right. That's the. We don't wage carnal warfare. Christian warfare. The last one I had was I think you put up on the You set up a compartment empty that was at least eternal. Right. And then during the millennial reign, it will fill up with, with people that are righteous that die. However many they are. I don't know how many it's going to be. Day, which I didn't have that clear in my mind before. Right. Yeah, the, the Revelation, uh, Zechariah 14, uh, starting in verse 16, talks about those who are around during the millennial reign and who are uh, not believers. They'll have a choice to come and worship Jesus or not. If they don't worship Jesus, uh, rain will not fall on their land. And that's starting in verse 16 all the way through verse 21. And so there will be people during a thousand year reign who are living just like we are now and have an opportunity to trust in Christ or not. And if they trust in Christ, they're nailed to written the Lamb's Book, Book of Life, and on Judgment Day, they'll be acquitted. It's like we were acquitted of our sins. They'll be acquitted of their sins, and they'll be with us forever. And that's when there's no a thousand year reign, no more, you know, you don't have to count days anymore. Ten thousand years later, and say, hey, John, I'm ten thousand years old. How are you? I'm ten thousand fifty, you know, <laughs> whatever it may be. And, yeah, or ten, you're only 18 years old, but 10,018. You know, so it, it, and we're not going to really be counting anymore. There's not going to be a son that the the Lord Himself, His glory, will be our our light. So, um, but it's it, not until then that that is the very end, and then eternity begins. The eighth day begins. Yes, both. There's a wine press I'm thinking of where they have a big vat, they have a bunch of grapes in there, people running around, stuff. Is that the same type of thing? Well, yeah. Uh, Wine press is that word actually means it's a big vat is all it means, but yeah, I, I think you're picturing it right. Uh, people stomp on the grapes to get wine out of it. Stomp, 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 stomp on grapes to get wine out of it. Yeah, you're picturing it right. And the picture you're seeing there, it's just stomping on his enemies and his blood, the wine, getting all over his robes. Yeah, so very uh, a picture of Jesus that most people aren't comfortable with. It doesn't incorporate who they think Jesus is, and. Uh, People really need to expand what they think Jesus is like. Stop giving their pastors, seeker-sensitive, purpose-driven life example of their Joel Osteen picture of Jesus and get the real picture of Jesus, what the scripture says. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. It's idolatry.
Oftentimes, when I, I'll, I've said this many times open air, that the greatest idol in America is his name is Jesus. But it's not the Jesus of the Bible. But they call him Jesus. There's many people in America who they worship someone they call Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. And so it, the greatest idol in America, from what I can see, his name is Jesus. And we saw it all throughout Belshire, a guy who claimed to be a Christian, uh, turned a trash can upside down, stood on top of it, cussing at me, threatening to punch me, and then he pushes me off the stool. I fall flat on my back, and then his wife, is professing Christian, comes and starts making false accusations against me. But these people say they know Jesus. And they do. Just not the Jesus of the Bible. Not the Jesus of Scripture. And so you see this all throughout America. But the, the second guy that, that stole the microphone, was he a professing Christian? Was he, they were together, right? No, they weren't, I don't know if they were together. But they were of like spirit, that's for sure, and so were the wives. Um, his wife accused me of not preaching the love of God. If I had preached the love of God, then this wouldn't have happened. I was like, why are you talking about the love of God when your husband just stole a piece of equipment from me and was trying to run off with it? And then when the cops finally got him, he lied about why he did it. And then he felt, he, he kind of had a little bit of humility. And he actually admitted, you know, I was just really mad. I didn't like what he was saying. I, I took his, his equipment. And he admitted it. Right in front of his wife, right in front of the cops, right in front of me. And um, that's good. He got a little humility. I'm hoping the other guy did. Because from what I what I understand, I don't know, maybe you told me or someone told me, he was still cussing up a storm when they were, had him on the ground. It might be because they, they probably, they threw him down off that trash can pretty hard. I watched the video a couple times. They threw him down pretty hard. I mean, you're you're probably this high on a off trash can. That's going to be a hard fall. So he might have been cussing because of how badly he got hurt when he got thrown to the ground, face first. No, no, he was cussing me about it, but I'm sure I remember. But no. I, when that, you know, when I saw you up there and he was above you with the trash can, I, started, I got away from the Christians mm -hmm. who were occupying me on the other corner, and I started to come to you with the camera. Right. And uh, then that happened, I, I'm taking pictures. And right. that happened, I get the video going. And the police are all over him, and then uh, he's cursing you. Right. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. And then, and then, you know, usually when that thing kind of thing happens, you get a little sympathy from the crowd for a minute. But that didn't happen with this crowd. Full of professing Christians, just cussing and, you know, hating you, and, and that's the kind of Jesus people serve. That he's okay with those kind of things. But he hates the preacher who preaches the actual Word of God.